The COVID-19 Conversations podcast is brought to you by the African Alliance with support from the South African Medical Research Council, the South African Department of Science and Innovation, and the Vaccine Advocacy Resource Group, which is 100% funded by activists. Hello, dear listeners. This is Maza Siyum from the African Alliance, and we are back with a great episode of the COVID-19 Conversations podcast. I was proud to welcome an African born and bred, but truly world-renowned researcher, scientist, and leader, Professor Glenda Gray, President and CEO of the South African Medical Research Council. This was particularly special since the MRC is a critical supporter of the African Alliance's COVID-19 work. Professor Gray talked about what it was like to, within a mind-blowingly short period of time, go from hearing about SARS-CoV-2 to working on a large COVID-19 vaccine trial to watching the president of the country roll up his sleeve to take that first COVID-19 vaccine. I was also able to ask her what it was like to do all of that while juggling politics and managing a huge non-COVID-19 portfolio. Professor Gray also reminisced a bit about experiences working on HIV research and access to treatment 20 years ago, and we discussed what lessons could be drawn from that experience for our fight for COVID-19 vaccines today. It was a real pleasure to hear directly from Professor Glenda Gray, and I hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So we are so thrilled today to have with us the CEO of the South African Medical Research Council, Professor Glenda Gray, join us for the COVID-19 Conversations podcast. Professor Gray, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. Excellent. We're thrilled to have you. So I'm going to jump right in. In your role as the CEO of the SAMRC, it seems these days like your name literally cannot be mentioned without COVID-19 being mentioned in the same sentence. So you are in many ways, at least to those of us who work on these issues of COVID-19 and vaccine research and vaccine access, the most recognizable face of this pandemic. I even saw an article that referred to you as the closest thing that South Africa has to Anthony Fauci, even though I'd prefer that he be referred to as the closest thing that the US has to a Glenda Gray. Um, So I wanted you to take us back to that pre-COVID era. So January of 2020, before people knew what this pandemic was going to be like, what did you anticipate the year was going to be like for you? The beginning of 2020, uh, we had our whole year mapped out and uh, we were going to finish our enrolling into our HIV vaccine trial and we were going to consolidate our whole genome sequencing program. And the MRC's mission is to fund and conduct research that changes the lives of South Africans. And we were moving from infectious diseases to non-communicable diseases because this was a new epidemic coming up and we had neglected it a lot given um, the burden of TB and HIV. And so at the beginning of March of 2020, we thought that uh, we were going to consolidate our non-communicable research agenda and start working on things like cancer, hypertension, diabetes. And so when we started to hear about this this infectious disease that was happening in China, we kind of thought it would be maintained or contained in Asia and that um, like uh, some of the other uh, previous respiratory-related pandemics, they they would kind of be contained in a geographical area and there would be minimal risk to the rest of the world. 
And I guess that was rather naive to think, given the global movement of people and the way people move all over the world, that we would be able to um, not see a, a global pandemic. And so looking back, uh, it is very even hard to think that Africa would be affected or South Africa would be affected. And slowly over the first few months, you know, we were keeping an eye on this COVID pandemic and watching what was happening in the rest of the world. And most of the time, even though everything was starting to unfold quite fast, uh, there was still this kind of disbelief that a pandemic like this was happening or could even happen in 2020. Yes, I can imagine. You know, as the year progressed, Prof, I mean, there are two sets of headlines that really stand out to me um, that you figure in. The first was back in the middle of last year when you were being treated quite harshly by some high-level people for your criticism of the way that the lockdown was being handled. Um, there was a moment even when some commentators were saying that, my gosh, Professor Gray might lose her job at the head of the MRC. And then just months later, you were there standing behind the scrum of people smiling under your mask. At least it looked to me like you were smiling as President Ramaphosa got his J&J vaccine and Kailicha. There were so many cameras, so many people. And I just wonder if you could tell me what was going through your mind that day with that presidential vaccine, especially given that you were one of the leads of the ensemble trial that tested the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in the country. But also if you could walk me through that journey from the the tweets that were saying Professor Gray is about to be fired to the tweets that you know were saying Professor Gray is the reason why South Africa has access to these vaccines. So if you could just kind of walk me through that period. At the beginning of the pandemic, the, we, South Africa suffered a, a severe lockdown. And obviously this impacted hugely on, on people's economic status and uh, millions of people lost their jobs. And a lot of these people that lost their jobs were women. And we also saw things like school closure and things like your daily meal being given at school for children who really needed it. We saw that all disappear. And South Africa was, was in a situation where, although we, we had to lock down, uh, we hadn't uh, supported our poor and most vulnerable people in a sustainable and comprehensive way. And so I guess at that stage, we were feeling, and or I was feeling that the balance between lives and livelihoods um, was was not taking into account uh, the kind of economic distress, hunger, and depression that people were facing as we had to navigate this COVID pandemic. And I guess um, at the beginning of the pandemic, as we try to navigate our way, uh, there will be large groups of people that will be outspoken. And I, I was outspoken around some of the regulations that I deemed did not help prevent transmission, for instance, using uh, the kind of garments you could wear or the kind of shoes you could wear. And so I, I think my criticism was leveled at let's make regulations um, that make sense and let's, let's make regulations that people can trust and let's make regulations that would, would only are only implemented to stop transmission. And so things like e-commerce and the kind of things you could wear were not really designed to protect against COVID transmission. And then I guess, you know, as we're navigating a, a pandemic, there are ways the government needs to act, and I guess there are ways the scientists need to act. And eventually we've got to find a, a way of, of working with each other that builds trust um, instead of mistrust. And so I think that was a difficult period of time for me, and it was just a, big, a difficult period of time for the Medical Research Council because it's not nice to have your president at odds with the government. 
most important thing about a scientist is that uh, you need to keep on doing your work. And so despite the spat around the regulations of the lockdown, I was fortunate enough to continue to be able to do my science. And my science at that stage was being part of a global program to look at um, rapid acceleration of COVID vaccines to see whether we could get efficacy studies done very rapidly. And um, given my involvement in HIV vaccine research and the fact that I was currently involved in an AD26 HIV vaccine, I rapidly collaborated with the group that were evaluating the AD26 vaccine, which, which now is called, I guess, the J&J jab. And I was fortunate enough to be a co-chair and help execute a multi-country study in which South Africa was also uh, included. And this single dose vaccine was designed as an emergency response to the pandemic. And when we started to do the vaccine trial, I did get reassurances from Johnson & Johnson that should this vaccine be effective, they would make any, every effort to make it available in South Africa. And so when um, we heard that the AstraZeneca vaccine would not work against our beta variant of concern, um, I was able to advise and discuss and navigate a way to try and get healthcare workers a, an alternative intervention, what we called plan B. So knowing that the vaccine could work and knowing that we had a problem um, and our healthcare workers needed to be vaccinated before the, the, the next wave, I contacted the Paul Stoffels at J&J to um, ask him if he had a spare million doses lying around. And um, he got back to me and said, you know, I would, uh, you're in a terrible situation in South Africa, we'd like to help you. And so when we spoke to our, my minister, you know, I let him know about this conversation and he was excited. And so we both contacted J&J and rapidly started to collaborate with them. We were able to make half a million doses of the J&J vaccine available to healthcare workers long before there was any emergency use listing for the vaccine. And this collaboration enabled us to rapidly implement Plan B um, in 14 days uh, from the time we heard that we wouldn't be able to use the AstraZeneca. And so for me, it, it was a beautiful period. And I was highly appreciative of my minister being able to set aside what had happened between the two of us and work with me, take my hand and help me to um, do this and lead this even though we had had uh, disagreements in the beginning. And so when the president got his vaccine, um, I felt you know, enormous pride, uh, not only because you know, we could vaccinate him, but the huge effort that had taken to, um, in 14 days, develop a protocol, bring the vaccine into the country, uh, get it to Kailicha and vaccinate him. It was, um, we had not slept in, in days. Uh, to be able to achieve this. So when I looked, when I was there at that day and I was grinning, it was just that anything is possible when people want it to work. Yeah, and that was really an amazing, amazing scene to watch. You know, people all over were watching. And I think um, for people who also support the idea of women in science and leading science, that was also a very um, inspiring moment to see you and Professor Becker, who had both led the ensemble trial to be there and watching this happen. So now I want to talk a little bit about um, your relationship with the African Alliance. As everyone who listens to our podcast knows, we are funded by the South African Medical Research Council and the Department of Science and Innovation. 
So firstly, I think it is important to acknowledge the foresight and the bravery that it takes for a research entity and a government department to fund a group of activists known for holding researchers and government to account. Um, so we recognize that and we appreciate it. But that said, I'd also like to talk about a, a bit about why this area of work, you know, the accountability, advocacy around research, meaningful community involvement is always so poorly funded generally. We know that this is an area of work that's comparatively cheap and that the return on investment for funding it is very high. And you of all people know that even the best medical invention is useless if it doesn't actually reach the arm or the vagina where it needs to be in order to actually make a difference. So what do you think the perpetual blockage is here in terms of funding community work and advocacy work? The community and advocacy work, it's very important that we, you know, I've learned very early on uh, study or, or any intervention. And um, it's hard to understand why it's so poorly underfunded because it's, it's such a high value uh, piece of work. And without the community, without advocacy, things will never get implemented. This area of work is so poorly funded and not appreciated. It's very important that we, you know, I've learned very early on and the importance of trust and for communities to trust you, particularly when you're doing work and clinical research. And um, the only way you build trust um, is by building relationships with the community. And the only way you um, keep your trust is, you know, is to have honest relationships that are independent to the science. And um, over the years, and I think HIV has taught us the importance of advocacy and community engagement. Um, and, it, and if it wasn't for HIV, uh, I don't think we would have ever have come this far with understanding the importance of, of the community. We know from, from the first time HIV uh, was described, we saw how it was associated with, with stigma, discrimination, with homophobia. Um, we, we saw in our own communities in South Africa how women who were HIV infected were thrown out of their home, how children, um, were thrown out of schools. And so I think that showed us that there was a huge gap between science and community and science and society. And that uh, for us to be successful, science and society had to come together and we had to work with advocacy because advocacy would pave the way, open up the doors and almost interpret. You know, So maybe I think of um, advocacy as, as sometimes as interpreters uh, how scientists are not good communicators. Sometimes they they, ha they have no um, experience with the communities they're working with, and um, although they 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 have passion about uh, trying to prevent or avert an infection, the translation of that might be poor. And so we do need our interpreters, and we do need our colleagues, and we do need our collaborators. And for me, I see advocacy as a partnership, as a science partnership. Uh, where you bridge the, the gap between science and society and um, you hold our hand so we can do things better um, than we've done it before. And so um, community engagement and advocacy is critical for trust. We even see it now with, um, with vaccine rollout is that there's a lot of distrust. People are still thinking that the COVID vaccine is experimental and that, um, and that science hasn't communicated well on this and has not entrusted the society. And so um, we do need at this stage more than ever collaboration with advocacy groups who can who can help us 
tell the story of science and improve the trust that is needed to have mass rollouts of interventions. Mm. And um, Prof, now that we're 18 months into the response to this pandemic, um, and as we talk about trust and making sure that we communicate things well, you know, we are looking back at the African Alliance at what we've tried to accomplish in the last 18 months. And I know that scientists are as well and government is as well. So I'd like to talk about how you would rate the response so far. I know that innovation is always a big part of what you are interested in, especially given the link with the Department of Science and Innovation for the work that African Alliance does and other work as well. So how innovative do you think the response has been? And can you also just share your thoughts on what meaningful innovation looks like to you, both in terms of the science and in terms of making sure that no community is left behind? Not everything we've done has been the best because um, one was one was whether you had good intentions or not, it doesn't mean that you're going to do everything perfect. So I think from that side, thinking on your feet and trying to be innovative is an important thing. And largely, science was innovative in this period. In South Africa, we quickly put together a, an agenda. So at the beginning of the pandemic, with the the global lockdowns and the 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 lack of reagents, South Africa found itself in a position where we could not even do enough PCR testing because we didn't have the reagents. The second thing, you know, we knew very little about this disease in Africa, in HIV-infected individuals and in and in uh, other individuals who had high uh, pathogen exposure. And so the, the second thing we did was implement surveillance and do uh, studies to try and understand other things um, like uh, vaccines. Uh, we knew that we had limited money, but we were able to collaborate at a global level and bring our expertise to the global endeavor. Very importantly, too, we understood that we had to understand the genetic surveillance as well. So besides just doing um, normal surveillance, we invested in um, genetic surveillance, looking at the molecular epidemiology of SARS-CoV-2 so we could pick up whether there would be any viral evolution. And we also worked also in therapeutics. So we tried to collaborate at an international level with different groups who were investigating different therapeutics so that we could also find therapeutic responses. So in all areas of, um, of SARS-CoV-2, we sought to fund to make sure that we could try and understand how to uh, navigate uh, COVID in our in communities. And so a lot of the work that we did were completely unique to South Africa and served the interest of South Africa. And had we not done a lot of the, the initial uh, science evaluations and funding, we might not have known about the evolution of, of SARS-CoV-2 over time. We might not have known about the impact HIV infection has on COVID. And, and um, we also might not have known about um, immune responses, um, particularly in immunosuppressed people. Great. And then in terms of the community side, I mean, I don't want to ask you to give us an evaluation right here on our podcast, but how would you generally rate the innovation in terms of communication and other advocacy-related issues? I know that that's an area that you and the Department of Science and Innovation are always very focused on. So we knew early on, uh, given our HIV experience, that if we didn't have good advocacy partners and we didn't have people that, that had networks in the community, um, we were not going to be successful in our endeavors. And our, our knowledge about the HIV epidemic you know, helped us um, understand what we needed to do 
in terms of collaboration with advocates and people who are experts in community engagement and communication. And so the, one of the very first things we did was form a collaboration uh, with the African Alliance to navigate the important areas that we one day roll out. So we you know, navigate the issue around COVID vaccination, navigate the issue of placebo-controlled studies, navigate the issue of unorthodox medication. And uh, we needed people to help us um, have these conversations uh, with communities, help us understand what was just and what was acceptable and what the community thought about uh, various interventions and, and also then how to navigate a vaccine rollout uh, once it was there, um, how to explain, you know, what, what is experimental? How come it only took eight months to find an effective vaccine? You know, is this experimental? So those were all critical questions that the community will ask and having a, a partner that understood these issues was critical for the success of, this, of science in South Africa. Okay. And now, since you've brought up HIV, I wanted to ask you a, a question related to that, kind of thinking a bit more now about the vaccine rollout. You know, you are somebody who worked so hard on access to HIV treatment for South Africa in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, so as we think about rollout, when you see what's going on now in terms of this global vaccine apartheid, what are your thoughts as someone who lived through the era of lack of access to antiretrovirals? I mean, as we, as we sit here now, you know, the figures that we are seeing is that only 2% of people in the lowest income countries have been vaccinated against COVID. That when we see the majority of people in the wealthier countries being vaccinated. So, you know, what are your thoughts as you see this happening again in a way now, the way it did with antiretrovirals 20 years ago? So like a, almost like a deja vu, you're horrified that it can happen again. And the writing was on the wall and there were, there were all these global discussions about vaccine equity and all the, the kind of um, global discussions that were happening about vaccine access and um, equity. And then to see that people were paying lip service to all of these, these ideals and that in fact was each country for itself. And so I guess what it taught me is that low and middle income countries settings and or low and middle income countries you know, need to make sure, need to get their house in order and need to make sure that they're part of the negotiations, they're part of the bilateral agreements and that they don't rely on global initiatives that might fail them. You know, we should, use, we should see global initiatives as, as plan B and uh, make sure that as a country in Africa or as Africa is that uh, we also make sure that we are able to leverage our position to make sure we're not left out. And also lesson about accesses, because we do know uh, by investing in innovation, this assured them uh, the, the right of access. And I think that in South Africa and in other parts of the world where uh, science is not a priority or science is seen as a luxury, you know, we failed to invest in innovation. And that's come at our peril because um, without investing in the whole clinical development pipeline, you can't uh, ensure your access at the end and the need to, to make sure that we are able to develop 
vaccine capabilities on this continent is a step in the right direction because we've learned that you can't rely on, on other people's generosity or benevolence. You know, you also have to be part of the innovation pipeline. You know, we can't outsource innovation to another country and then expect vaccine access. You know, we have to be global players. We need to do the same thing that the US did and the UK did and see um, the only way that you can uh, manage a pandemic is as if, if you invest in science. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and as you know, you know, you bring up a, a very critical point here about shifting the attention to African leaders um, and other bodies on the African continent that are leading this initiative. As you know, so far, much of the focus on the fight for vaccine access and equity has been focused on governments in the global north, those who are hoarding vaccines or blocking mechanisms like the TRIPS waiver, which would make it easier for South Africa and other countries to manufacture their own vaccines. But recently, we have seen activists and advocates also turn their attention to African leaders and express a desire to hold them to account as well. So you are someone who I know um, is recognized for battles with the South African government during the days of HIV denialism. I mean, the situation now is obviously very different. We're not talking about that sort of fight, but just generally, what sort of advice do you have for Af African activists who want to challenge their own leaders about issues of accountability, vaccine rollout, shifting attention to science, as you say, what would you tell the activists that we work with around the continent about challenging African leaders? There are two things that we should tell act activists in the global north and, and activists in Africa. And so I think the, 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 the message I would have for activists in the global north is that um, their countries bankrolled vaccine development. So Operation Warp Speed and Barter bankrolled Big Pharma to be able to, to find vaccines and accelerate it. So Big Pharma did not do this at their own risk. I'm not talking about Pfizer, but let, let's take uh, Moderna and the J&J program. A lot of these companies did not have to use their own uh, shareholders or their own money to accelerate vaccine development. Um, they, they were protected um, by the federal government and by the availability of these huge sums of money to, to accelerate their vaccine development. And, and so I think the question I would ask the activists in the global north is given the fact that governments, the public purse bankrolls the development of these vaccines, there should be a clause in this that addresses issues of a patent tech transfer and benefit sharing. Because if the public purse, you know, if taxpayers pay for this and take the risk for big pharma, there should be benefit sharing at a global level. And so I think we need to ask the question is like, what is benefit sharing? And if the public purse and taxpayers take the risk for big pharma, there should be some return to the taxpayer. And, and so I think that's, that, that we should be asking, you know, what are in these contracts? You know, why, why was there, there not issues of tech transfer and costing and equity put into these contracts? to ensure um, global equity. For activists in the global south is the importance of holding our countries accountable. You know, we told over and over again how poor our countries are and how we can't afford this and we can't, we can't afford a vaccine and we can't afford investment in science. Yet hundreds of millions of rand are wasted in corrupt 
deals and in corruption. We've seen with PPE, the building of COVID facilities, um, we've seen with the building of ICUs for COVID response is that we've just wasted, we've thrown millions and millions of rands uh, down the drain. So we do have money and it seems that we have money for corruption, but we don't have money for vaccines. And so I think that for, for um, activists in South Africa, we should ask those questions. You know, how is it that we could spend 500 million rand on PPE um, that's insufficient and inadequate or on, on communications? And we, we couldn't find the money to invest in vaccines. You know, why could we not just have put that money into vaccine development? You know, uh, what, what's the story? So I think uh, the first sign, the first start of activism in, in South Africa is to start to hold our government accountable for the corruption and the wastage of millions and millions and millions of rand that could have bought uh, vaccines and could have in, been invested in vaccine development. Mm. And I think this is where, you know, the relationship between science and activists remains so important. You know, I believe that there are advocates and activists all over the continent who are now ready to turn their attention to African leaders in terms of holding our own governments to account. But they could really, um, I think, benefit from, you know, the support and statements from you because there is such gravitas when it comes from the head of the South African Medical Research Council or other researchers who have been involved in this for a long time, just to confirm what activists and advocates are, you know, hearing and suspecting. So we will definitely be coming back to you for that um, as those messages are being are being developed. So now I have a question for you about how we keep communities engaged and interested in research generally. You know, my concern is that the communities we focus on, recruit and continuously engage have been through a series of HIV vaccine trials and other trials that maybe have not resulted in as many successful products as we would have hoped. And this has been followed up by COVID-19 vaccine trials leading to safe and effective vaccines in a very short time frame, time frame, but now with vaccines that are not as easily accessible to the public as some would have hoped, maybe not so much in South Africa where the rollout is moving, but um, in other African countries. So I sometimes worry that communities will lose interest in research or maybe lose faith in the research process. And I just wonder, is that something that keeps you up at night too? I know this is really you know, more our area of work, but given your long career of research, I wonder if you have any thoughts about how we can keep communities engaged and interested in research despite all the setbacks over the years. Sure, I mean, we have to, um, and maybe it's around the communication gap um, around us as scientists, is that I think it's important that communities, communities understand um, why science is important and why clinical research is important, is that it impacts directly on their lives. And maybe we don't spend enough time explaining to communities that the vaccines we give children are because of clinical research. And these vaccines that we give children have saved their lives. And um, the ARVs that you put in your mouth uh, were part of clinical research. And if we didn't do that research, um, we wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to live um, as long as you are living. And so maybe people don't understand that the pill they put in their mouth or the vaccine that they put in their arm um, comes from in decades of investment in research and that um, medical research directly translates into, into benefit. 
for society. And um, we don't spend enough time explaining to people why science is important and why we need to keep on invest investing in it because um, we, we need to improve on under five mortality. The only way we can improve on that is to find vaccines. We need to improve on neonatal mortality rates and that's the only way we can do that is by investing in research in the first 28 days of life. We have to prevent um, women dying in, in childbirth um, and during pregnancy and in the postpartum period. And um, we need to, we, we've done a poor job in explaining to people um, the value of, of research. And then it's not just about HIV or TB, it's about every facet from contraception uh, to water to, um, you know, preventing allergies. And that all has to be science driven. And so we've done a poor job explaining uh, why science is important for everything um, that we do, from what we eat to um, uh, get rid of pollution or, you know, and improve the ventilation in our home or why uh, it's not good to live near a, a, mining, a mine dump and to see the relationship between environmental health and science and um, climate change and science and our lack of translating why science is important in poor communities. And so we should be held responsible for this because um, we haven't done a good job about it. Mm -hmm. And I think also so important important to remind people that, you know, no trial is a failure. Yeah. Because even if the product is not successful at the end of it, you always learn something from, from every trial. And I think that's something that's always critical to remind people of that, even if the product was not proven safe and effective at the end of a trial, that the scientists did learn something. And we constantly have to remind communities of that. So I have a very indulgent question, Prof. Um, you have led so much research over the years. Um, and I'm just curious, when you look back to all the trials that you've been involved in, what is the most impactful or memorable trial that you have taken part in? The time of the beginning of the HIV epidemic in South Africa, where um, we had no antiretrovirals, and the only thing we had was cotrimoxazole to prevent PCP pneumonia, and having to um, manage sick children and and see them die despite all your interventions because they needed antiretroviral therapy and so the most exciting studies that i were ever involved in um, were those that gave treatment uh, to people and um you know the, um, the mother to child transmission studies were, were critical because you know we could avert infection and th those were, were were beautiful and me very exciting um, but as exciting um, was you initiate treatment on a trial and um, in one week the person is stronger in the second week um, they're not using a walking stick in the third week they're putting on weight in the fourth week um, they clean their house and the same with children you know children would come in you know and lie on the bench and not color in and not play and um, seeing the treatment trials breathe life in them and they would come back and they would be playing. So I think for me, the, the best research I've been involved in is actually um, treatment research because we saw how these treatments gave people their lives back. We saw how these treatment researchers allow children to play again. And, um, I, you know, we forget, I'd forgotten, you know, that children who were so sick 
with HIV when they got treatment, they could play again. And that was very gratifying for me. Mm, yes, very, very moving. So now just taking things back to COVID, the country has just survived or gone through a third wave, but the vaccination program is compared to other African countries going relatively well. I believe about 13.5% of people in South Africa have been fully vaccinated. So can you give us a prediction for what you think the next year will be like in South Africa in terms of COVID? How optimistic are you feeling? So my optimistic Glenda uh, sees good vaccine coverage together with exposure to COVID-19 infection in the, in the last wave as um, a, a good and potential barrier to minimize the fourth wave that we might see in the summer months. And so I do hope that um, we can breathe a bit better um, in the fourth wave. The waves are always terrifying, you know, because we, we have huge strain on hospital beds. Um, we have huge strain on oxygen. We have loved ones who are waiting in cars to get into hospital and who could die. We've all had loved ones and colleagues and um, people who we work with who've died from COVID in the past um, waves. And so it'll be nice to be in a situation in South Africa where we start controlling mortality um, from COVID. Already um, in 2021, COVID-19 will be the biggest killer that will pass HIV in the arena. And that for me is, is tragic. And I hope that um, the vaccination rollout will help slow down the deaths from COVID and that we will start inch by inch, vaccine by vaccine, uh, getting our lives together, uh, back together again in South Africa. Mm. And you've just made me think of something. I know that the Medical Research Council does do research on mental health issues as well. And I've often wondered with the amount of death that people have been witnessing either at home with their loved ones or healthcare professionals, you know, in these hospitals where they feel like there's not much they can do for, for people and, you know, lack of beds. Is the Medical Research Council doing any research on the mental health toll following the COVID-19 pandemic? We are collaborating with the Human Sciences Research Council and um, with some of the universities to look at uh, mental health and how it's changed in this COVID pandemic, um, particularly for university students as well as um, people in the community. And we, we do predict that there's gonna be a, there's gonna be a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder and that the impact of this COVID-19 pandemic will have effects in every age group um, in, and in every age range. Um, and so we are working with social scientists to be able to unravel this. We also know that the pandemic with its lockdown has increased gender-based violence and child abuse and to try and understand the extent and to try and implement interventions that will mitigate that. Okay, that's good to know that that's being worked on. And now I have um, just a question about you and your personal future, if you don't mind. I know you've been at MRC for more than five years. You had signed on to a second five-year five-year contract. You know, do you see yourself at some point being an academic or will you stay in this field um, managing research? Where do you see yourself in a few years? I always see myself as a scientist. 
So I've been very fortunate and blessed in my current position is that I've been allowed to be science active and, um, and, and um, allowed to also keep uh, my, my hand in science. So I've been really grateful for this position where I've been able to straddle both uh, science administration and, and be directly involved in science. So I do see myself in the future as um, going back to science. You know, I, I, I think that I could, couldn't do anything else um, but science. I don't think I have any other skills. <laughs> I don't know what else I could do. Um, maybe I could go, I could, you know, sometimes I do think that, um, you know, I need to, to um, go learn how to be a doctor again. Um, and maybe it's a combination of, um, of being a doctor again and being involved in clinical research, which um, I think I'd love to do until the day I die. Mm. Well, I know that um, whatever you end up doing, people always talk about you being a force of nature and really appreciate having your strength and energy behind them. And I can say that we really appreciate your support as the African Alliance as well. Um, I am done with my questions, Professor Gray. So I just wanted to ask you, is there anything that I haven't brought up that you think our listeners would like to know, either about um, the COVID-19 pandemic, the work of the Medical Research Council, innovation, anything else that you think the listeners of the, the COVID-19 Conversations podcast would like to know? Take your vaccine and encourage everybody else to take their vaccine, because um, the only way we can as a nation uh, fight this pandemic as if we do together. And the vaccine is one of the tools that we need uh, to help control this pandemic in South Africa. Excellent. Thank you so much, Professor Glenda Gray, CEO, President of the South African Medical Research Council. I know this is a very, very busy time for you. So we really appreciate you making time to speak with us. Thank you very much and good luck. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope today's discussion has resonated with you, provoked new thoughts, and provided you with evidence-based information as we all work to ensure that the global response to COVID-19 is accountable, equitable, and community-owned. This episode of the COVID-19 Conversations podcast was produced in conjunction with Volume. Our executive producer is Tian Johnson, I am Maaza Siyum. You can follow us on Twitter at Afri underscore Alliance or email us at info at africanalliance.org.za to give us feedback on this episode or to suggest topics for future episodes. Also, please don't forget to sign up at africanalliance.org.za to never miss key news.